you have your Bible, if you could turn to Matthew 10. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, we have Bibles throughout the room under the seats, so feel free to, to uh, grab one of those to you. Uh, or if you don't have the English Standard Version, uh, that's also our gift to you. That's the translation that we use here at, at our church. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 10 this morning, verses 24 to 39. You know, we do two services, and singing at the top of your lungs for two services is not the most helpful for preaching. But we'll, we'll, we'll try to get through it. <clears throat> Matthew 10, 24 to 39. It's been said that the gospel is free, but it will cost you everything. The gospel is free, but it will cost you everything. I wonder what you think about that phrase. Is it biblical? Well, the Bible makes it abundantly clear in Romans 6.23 that eternal life is the free gift of God for all who receive it by faith. And the Bible also makes it abundantly clear for that, that for those who put their faith in Christ, their lives are no longer theirs. 1 Corinthians 6.19-20 says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Jesus says in Luke 9.23 also, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So Jesus sets the bar high for his followers. And the truth is, none of us could attain to this high bar without his grace and without his empowering Spirit, But the truth is, the reality is that by, by faith in Christ, we receive all of him and all of his blessings and all of his grace. And we receive his spirit, his powerful, his powerful spirit working in us what is naturally and humanly impossible. So if you look at God's standards, if you look at this passage that we're going to read today, and then you... Look at yourself alone, you will despair. But if you look at God's standards and look at God in all his might, you will have hope. So this morning, we're going to hear from Jesus about the great cost of following him. And if you're like me, you will see how much you fall short. But I urge you, Christian, don't respond to the words of Jesus saying, that can never be me but instead respond with that can be me because as we sang, Christ is in me. I have Christ within me. So before we get to our text, we need to rewind just a bit to see what's happened uh, in uh, the verses that have come before this to set the context of what Jesus is going to say here. So at the end of Matthew chapter 9 and verses 35 to 38, Jesus is preaching the good news. He is healing the sick. We see his compassion for the crowds because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus tells his disciples, pray that God would send out laborers into his harvest. And in chapter 10, that's exactly what he does with his disciples. He sends them out into the harvest in verses 1 to 15. Jesus prepares them for their ministry throughout Israel, which would include preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
They'd also be given authority to cast out demons and to heal diseases. That ministry was going to be, though, specifically to what verse 5 says, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and they would soon be doing that. But verses 16 to 23, it, it appears that Jesus is preparing them. Their mission would also include not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. Look at verse 18 briefly. It says, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. This is exactly what we find in the book of Acts. They're brought before kings and governors and, and the Gentiles. And Jesus says in verse 16, I'm going to send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's danger. That's danger. Uh, sheep in the midst of wolves is that they should expect to be attacked. They should expect harm. And that's what Jesus is sending his disciples out into. Now we come to our text, and Jesus continues on the rest of this chapter to tell his disciples what they should expect as they follow him. And if you have your outline with you there, these five points, these are five aspects of what it will mean for us to truly follow Christ. First, followers of Christ should expect slander. Look at verses 24 to 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So Jesus tells his disciples, because you're connected to me, because you are followers of me, you should expect the same kind of treatment that I have Received. He says, a disciple isn't above his teacher. If they've treated the teacher who deserves more respect in this way, how much more are they going to treat the disciple, the, the student, um, in the same kind of way? Same for a servant and their master. If they treated the master this way, are they going to treat the, the servant any better? So the truth here is that we should never expect better treatment than our Savior received and said we should expect the same treatment that our Savior received, Jesus says. And one way which we should expect it is in slander against us. Again, look at what Jesus says. He says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So they call Jesus Beelzebul. Does that mean anything to you? Who, who, is, who is Beelzebul? Well, Beelzebul means, in, it comes from Hebrew, which means Lord of the high abode. And at Jesus' time, that came to be referred to and used by the Jews as a reference to Satan himself. So, back in chapter 9, verse 34, the Pharisees say to Jesus, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. In 12.24, the Pharisees said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So, the claim was that Jesus himself was possessed by Satan, God. And he is called Satan. He's being charged as being possessed by Satan. So, the name calling for Christ was just that. It was only name calling. There was no basis in truth. And and we too, as followers of Christ, should seek to be in that same position. 
where we live in such a way where our love for God, our love for neighbor, our righteousness, our good works will leave no one to really do damage to our character except through lies and false accusations. And even when we do sin against others, and we do, we will be quick to confess it, quick to repent, and quick to seek forgiveness, and, and therefore be blameless in the eyes of the world. So Jesus' life was characterized by rejection, by persecution, by slander, and so the same will be for us. So following Jesus means resigning yourself to being lied about and having your name drugged through the mud. And if you can't handle that, you're going to follow Jesus maybe in secret, but never publicly out of fear for others. But we should want to get to a point where we simply just don't care what people say about us, what names they may call us, how they look at us, what they think about us. When, when the world sees that you just don't care what they say about you, they don't know what to do with that. They want you to care what, what they think about you. They want you to be hurt and harmed by what they say about you. But when they, say, when they see that that doesn't phase you, that your faith in Christ is strong and goes unfazed by that, that you really don't, you love them, but you don't care about their approval. You care about the approval of God. That's where we need to follow Christ into. Receiving slander, not being phased by it, expecting it because Jesus said, this is how you will be treated as my followers. So followers of Christ should expect slander. Secondly, followers of Christ should not fear man. Look at verses 26 to 31. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So in these verses, three times, Jesus commands his disciples not to fear. Verse 26, so have no fear of them. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body. Verse 31, fear not. So when you, when you see that kind of repetition in the Bible, uh, it means you need to take note because often that repetition is going to mean that that's, that's the main point that you need to receive. In the, and we need this. We need the, the repetition. We need to remember that there's no need for us to fear. But Jesus does more than simply tell his disciples not to fear. He gives them reasons and he grounds it in three truths. And the first truth is that, that he grounds it in is that God will write all wrongs. Look at verse 26. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. All of the, the schemes in private or even the attacks in public that will be done against God's people, the persecution that they will receive, in the end, God will bring it all to light and he will bring it all to account. Believers throughout scripture take hope that in the end, none of the evil that's done to them 
will go unpunished. God will bring his righteous judgment on all his enemies. And God's persecuted people will be shown to be in the right. They'll be vindicated just as Christ their Lord was vindicated. So we need to balance this, this point with what Scripture also says that, and Jesus says that we should pray for our enemies. We should pray for our persecutors. We should pray for their repentance. We should pray for their salvation. And if they, like Paul, turn from persecutor of Christians to Christian, we should rejoice in that. That's what we should pray for, for our persecutors. But for all those who persist in their evil to God, we know that one day God will right every wrong that his people have endured because he's a holy judge. And in the end, he will bring perfect justice. So that's the first truth that should cast out fear for us. The second truth that Jesus says that should cast out fear and we should find comfort in it and courage from it. And that's this. Men can only kill the body. Does that comfort you? <laughs> Men can only kill the body. Look again at verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Followers of Christ are to fear God because God and God alone has control over what happens to one's body and one's soul. Men, on the other hand, only have control over what can happen to a Christian's body. And even that is under the sovereign control and allowance of God. They may burn you at the stake, but your soul remains untouched and will live with God for eternity. They may torture you, but as painful as that, that may be, what is that pain in view of eternity, of bliss? and reward with Christ in heaven. This is why Christians in the past have been able to look martyrdom, death for Christ, they've been able to look martyrdom in the eye and be unfazed by it and even to mock it. Justin Martyr, he was an early Christian martyr. He once wrote, you can kill us, but you cannot do us any real harm. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Martin Luther said, and a mighty fortress is our God. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. What is death for the Christian except the door to life? Paul says in Philippians 1, 21 and 23, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My desire better. Why don't Christians talk like this anymore? Why don't we talk like Justin Martyr? Why don't we talk like Martin Luther? We don't talk this way because we don't think this way. For too many professing Christians, all of their hopes are wrapped up in this life. They live entirely for this life. They live for comfort. They live for wealth, for entertainment, for pleasure. God is a tag-on occasionally on the weekends. Eternity is a backburner thought for them. So for them, to die seems like a loss. Loss of all the things that they really care about. But we need followers of Christ who can say with Paul, to die is gain. 
And it's those kind of Christians who could face their persecutors and say, you can kill us, but you can't do us any real harm. It's been said about the great Christians of the past that they feared man so little because they feared God so much. May that, may that be true for us. Now, the likelihood, I want to spend some time in, in applying this truth because I need it. I believe we all need this deeply. The likelihood of any of us being faced with death as a follower of Christ is probably pretty small. The time may eventually come in our country where we may face that, but for most of us in this building, we're probably not going to, in our lifetime, face the decision to deny Christ or die. But there are a host of situations any of us may be put in where the choice will be to fear man or to fear God. We're faced with those decisions all the time. Some of you will be placed in a situation where your boss or your manager will try to get you to do something immoral or unethical. And you have the choice at that time to fear man and compromise your faithfulness to God or to fear God and reap the consequences for your job. And, and you just need to make up your mind. Every one of us who's in the workforce needs to make up our mind. I'm okay with losing my job because of faithfulness to God. We just all need to make up that decision right now. I'm okay losing my job out of faithfulness to God. God's going to take care of me. If he were to bring me to that point, he's going to take care of me. I think of our students high school or college students in a biology or ethics class where <clears throat> your Christian beliefs are not going to be welcome. God and his truth and his word is going to be mocked. You're, if you're going to hold to a biblical view of creation, of morality, you're going to be seen as backward. You're going to be seen as a science denier and any other host of uh, negative views that you're going to receive. And, and you may be in a situation, and many Christian students are, in the classroom where God is being mocked. His word is looked at it and, and laughed at as a bunch of myths and fables. And you're, you're going to have the choice to let that go on and remain silent or to be maybe the lone voice to speak for Christ there and to stand up for his honor. You're going to have the choice there to fear man and fear the crowd or to fear God and to stand up for the name of Christ. We need Christians, Christian students who will stand up for the name of Christ and for his honor in those scenarios. And I think we're going to face it more and more in the future. It's going to be harder and harder to be Christians in our country. That's, that's how things seem to be going. And, and I, I want to challenge us and encourage us with what our outlook needs to be. Some Christians look at the prospect of persecution increasing in our country in the years and decades ahead, and they could get really gloomy about it. And I understand, uh, apart from God's intervention, uh, things don't look bright in our country. But the outlook of Christian, Christians in the face of that and in the face of Persecution needs to be not gloom, but joy. We need to have joy. 
Matthew 5, 10 to 12, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Blessed, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice, Jesus says, and be glad. Have a smile on your face. Okay? If you're kicked off of social media for faithfulness to Christ, here's, you, here's what you need to do. Not go to your room and cry. Um, you need to throw a party. Okay? And I mean it. Throw a party. Invite your friends over. All right? If you lose your job for obedience to Christ, invite your church family over for a barbecue when it's warmer, all right? Um, celebrate. Jesus says rejoice and be glad. If your name gets blacklisted because of your obedience to Christ, rejoice because Jesus says your reward is great in heaven. And Jesus continues, he provides a third reason not to fear man. We shouldn't fear man because God loves his children deeply. Look at verses 29 to 31. Are not... Two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. If God cares for the sparrows. If he knows the minutest details about the hairs on your head, he's going to care for you even as you face persecution. Though men may hate you and seek your harm, God loves you, and is, will carry you through it, and will care for you in the midst of it. So, as followers of Christ, we should expect slander, because Christ was slandered. We shouldn't fear man. Instead, we should fear God. And thirdly, Jesus tells his disciples that followers of Christ will openly confess his name. Look, at, look down at verses 32 to 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, <clears throat> I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So these verses should probably be included in those category of verses that are often called the hard sayings of Jesus, the sayings that may make us a little uneasy. But our hearts shouldn't resist the hard sayings of Jesus. We should seek to truly understand them. And, in, and then when we understand them, embrace them wholeheartedly. Because these are the words of Jesus. Completely trustworthy. And they're true even if they're uncomfortable. And the clear meaning of Jesus' words is that his disciples must confess his name before others. Why? Because if they do, Jesus will Acknowledge them before the Father. But if instead they deny him before others, Jesus will deny them before the Father. If we don't take the, the name of Jesus on our lips in this life, Jesus will not take our name on his lips when we stand before him. It will be like 
those in Matthew 27, 23, who were told, depart from me, I, I never knew you. You have to ask, we have to ask ourselves, what is worse? The temporary pain for confessing Christ or the eternal pain for denying Christ? Brothers and sisters, how could we, who have been saved by Christ, be embarrassed by Christ? How could we be ashamed of him? He has died for our salvation. How could we be so hesitant to speak the name of the one who loved us to his own suffering and death? Do people who know you know that you're a Christian? Or would they be surprised if they found out? One of the first things that people should know about you, if you are a Christian, is that you are a Christian. Whether that's through Christ being a normal and natural part of your conversation, it's just there because he's, he's everything to you. Or how he, just your spiritual influence on your coworkers and neighbors and, and praying for them, inviting them to, to church, or just speaking openly about Christ and his word on social media. We should happily and unashamedly confess that Jesus is our Lord. Yet, who among us hasn't denied Christ at different times and in different ways? Whether that be through our words and through our actions or through our silence. You may not have been put in a situation where someone asks you, are you a Christian? And you say, no. Maybe you have. But there are a host of deny Christ with, with our lives and with our actions. Two, two weeks ago, Pastor Daniel reminded us of Peter, who though he was willing to follow Christ to death, he said, Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter, when he could have stood firm and openly confessed Christ, he blatantly denied him. He denied that he was a follower of Christ. But after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus comes back to Peter and he restores him. For the three times that he denied Christ, Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter affirms his love for Christ. and Jesus forgives and, and recommissions him to his future mission. Go feed my sheep. And Peter, that denier of Christ, became a bold confessor of Christ. And he can do the same in all of us. Christian, if you've denied Christ and haven't sought his forgiveness, do so today, do so now. And ask for the power of the Spirit to make you from today onward a Christian who openly and joyfully claims the name of Jesus, not with embarrassment, but with boldness. So Jesus continues on. He doesn't lighten things up for us right now. Uh, I know this is pretty heavy so far, but, but he continues on with the great cost of following him. In verses 34 to 37, he tells his disciples that followers of Christ may, may lose life's dearest relationships. Verses 34 to 37, he says, 
Do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Some people view, their view of Jesus is just this moral teacher who just went around telling people to be nice to each other and peace and love, can't we all just get along? And certainly Jesus taught us to love our neighbor and to have compassion on our neighbor. But Jesus also told, the same people that he told to love their neighbors also told them, you may be hated by your neighbors for following me. There will be conflict that will arise with others because of your following of me, even in your own family. Happened to Christ, right? It happened to Christ. Even some of Jesus' own family in Mark 3.21 said, he is out of his mind. It's Jesus' own family members. Maybe, maybe they've said that about you. <laughs> he's out of his mind for following this cult. This, he's a religious fanatic. But Christ, uh, who loved the lost, was treated with hatred and anger and persecution, we should expect the same. We should love our family deeply. We should, as Romans 12, 18 says, we should seek to leave, live peaceably with all people. We need to love our families, love our families sacrificially. But for some, following Christ will mean, will mean that your relationship with family members will be negatively impacted because of your choice to follow Christ. I read this week about a woman in North Africa. Um, she, this is, this is common. This is common. What happened to her? But she, she was brought to a Christian medical clinic in a wheelbarrow. She was brought there in a wheelbarrow. She was sick and about to die until she received Christ, care from the Christian gospel with her. And she believed, she trusted in Christ. And then she went back to her own family. And she shared her new faith in Christ with her family. And her own father beat her. Her own father beat her for it. Nevertheless, she stood strong. She continued to share the gospel. And her own father eventually came to faith in Christ. Now he's an evangelist going from village to village, sharing the gospel. For many who come to faith in Christ around the world, this is what they know will happen to them for following Christ, or even worse. Some people know that if I openly confess Christ, I will probably die for it. But they still openly confess in him and believe his name. Because he alone is the Savior. He alone is worthy of our lives and all of our devotion. So most of us won't be like this woman, beaten by a family member because of our faith in Christ. But some of you have been ostracized by your family because of your faith in Christ. Some of you have ongoing tension in your marriage 
in your house, with your kids, or with your extended family situation this morning, I just want to encourage you, keep loving your spouse. Keep loving your parents. Keep loving your children. Keep loving your siblings. Keep praying for them and for their salvation. Do, do everything that you can to affirm your love for them. Everything that you can to make it clear that, uh, and, and no doubt, that you love them deeply. It's a heavy weight to bear to be separated or ostracized or to have tension in your family for your love for Christ. But, but by God's grace, you are able to. And, and by God's grace, by God's power, he can even use your witness and testimony of faith and love for them to bring them to Christ, to faith in Christ. So Jesus's words are meant to build us into the kind of disciples who can endure anything and will endure anything because of his surpassing worth. It may result in the the loss of family or may result, as we're going to see in the final verses here, in the loss of our lives. Final aspect of following Christ is that followers of Christ are prepared to die for Christ. Look at verses 38 to 39. Whoever does not take his cross and finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus, when, his, when Jesus' disciples heard the words, take up your cross and follow me, they were very well acquainted with Roman crucifixion. What did it mean for a person to take up a cross? It was taking up a cross en route to crucifixion, en route to their own death. Jesus says, you must be willing to lose your own lives for my sake. And many Christians in the last 2,000 years have done just that. Jesus to them was worth holding on to and confessing, even if it meant losing their lives. So every Christian needs to ask themselves the question, and, and, and you need to ask yourself the question right now, am I willing to die if necessary for Christ? If a gun was literally held to my head and I was asked, do you believe in Christ? What would my answer be? What would your answer be? If God called you to a hostile country as a missionary to bring the gospel, even though it would in all likelihood mean danger that could result in the loss of your life, would you be willing to go? Jesus sacrificed everything for us. Will we not sacrifice everything for him? Jesus says in verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The New Living Translation helpfully translates it. If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give your life for me, give give up your life for me, you will find it. To lose our lives to lose ourselves in service to Christ is to find true life. And one of the most remarkable examples of this from church history comes from the lives of Adoniram and Ann Judson, missionaries to Burma. Adoniram had his heart set on bringing the gospel to India. And he also had his heart set on a certain girl, Anne. And in a letter... 
Adoniram wrote to Anne's father asking for his permission to marry her. And here's what he wrote. And Pastor Daniel uh, in the past has read this in it. We need to hear it again. Our hearts need to be encouraged and challenged by this. Adoniram wrote, I have now to your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure in her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Anne's father said yes. And Anne said yes. That passage is a whole lot harder (laughs) to read when you have a daughter. (laughs) But that's the cost that any of us should be willing to to go if Christ were to call us or to call our kids or our grandkids to because Christ is worth it and the world needs the gospel. So Adoniram and Anne would face much suffering as missionaries and would eventually lose her life while ministering the gospel in Burma. But she took up her cross and followed Christ. She counted the cost spent her life following Christ wherever he would send her. Some would say she lost her life. Christ would say she found her life. We're going to have the worship team come forward now. There is a beautiful hymn that was written a couple hundred years ago called Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken. And we're not going to sing that. Maybe we'll sing that in the future as a church. But here are two verses from that hymn that get to the heart of Jesus' words, of what it means for us to take up our cross and follow him. Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken. Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition. God, let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them, untrue. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends disown me. Show thy face, and all is bright. Amen.